0: It's psychology month and in 2024 we're talking about climate change. One of the most important things we can do when it comes to climate change is to make sure the scientists working on the crisis have their science shared and heard and understood by the rest of us. In the academic community they call this knowledge mobilization. We've discovered something important but it's only important if our findings are acted upon by the people who can best make use of them. This is not always an easy process. My name is Eric Bowman, I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. The muzzling of scientists in Canada made a lot of headlines about a decade ago, when the federal government started stepping in to decide what government scientists could and couldn't say to the media. A change in federal political parties was supposed to stop this, but my guest today says that this hasn't really been the case especially when it comes to climate change. She also says that the ramifications of that muzzling have been f- more far-reaching than anyone might have anticipated, finding their way into academic settings, provincial government policies, and other research settings even outside the federal one. My name
1: is Dr. Anna Westwood. I'm an assistant professor at the School for Resource and Environmental Studies at Dalhousie University.
0: Terrific. And I reached out to you because I read your article in the conversation, which basically says, and, and I think we all, those of us in the sort of scientific community know that there was a lot of muzzling of scientists over the past decade or so that a lot of people thought that that had gone away with the change in government and with some new policies implemented and what you're saying is that that really hasn't gone away it just looks a little different now than maybe it did seven eight years ago and i'm hoping that you can sort of tell me you know what your perception of this is and and are you feeling some of this yourself what was the genesis of this study that you guys did
1: the so-called muzzling of scientists was really well documented during the the Stephen Harper conservative government era. And it was really quite obvious at that time, you know, sort of minders were sent with scientists to tag along with them at conferences and watch what they could and could not say. Journalists were barring from speaking to federal government scientists. Uh, So that was really well documented. There were a couple of surveys, um, but kind of rumors have persisted and rumor and anecdote are not science and data. So particularly after Um, A study was published in Australia showing what they called science suppression, that was the word that they used for it, in in 2021, we thought it was time to take a temperature check for Canada and see if indeed, as you said, this, this problem had gone away or it was still pervasive and had it changed. Just because we have a change in government and some new policies perhaps means that things are alleviated, or maybe they've just kind of become a bit more insidious. So we did a study of environmental researchers in Canada because we knew that under kind of the past regime, this was climate and environment was one of the most heavily muzzled areas. And unfortunately, we found that interference in science, as, as we're calling it as a catch all term that encompasses some of these different elements is still ongoing and pervasive at higher levels than we expected.
0: I'm wondering if uh, your study was able to discern some of the reasons for this. I saw that you made a point of saying some of this is governmental, some of it is private sector, public sector, and that it comes from internal mechanisms within the organizations in which the researchers do their research. and And I'm wondering if maybe that's a carryover. Somebody has been implementing the policies of uh, sort of managing the information that gets out there, and they're reticent to stop doing that, even though the rules have changed. Or is there something a? Little more, I guess you use the word insidious. Is there something more insidious than that?
1: Over ninety percent of our respondents, we had about seven hundred and fifty respondents, which which is a good size for for uh, reporting on this population, had experienced some form of interference, had reported some form of interference. So we don't actually know when they reported it, and we can't tie because we wanted to protect people's anonymity. We can't tie you know, individuals to what sector, whether they're a government scientist or an academic scientist or working for industry or a nonprofit. But we did kind of look at all the sources they identified for their interference, and we categorized them into two types, as you mentioned. So one is externally imposed. So that's when their organization is adding restrictions on their ability to conduct or communicate their research and that could come from workplace policies, that could come from their manager, could come from senior leadership, it could come from communications departments. So, we did still find quite a bit of evidence of this externally imposed interference, which is kind of like that muzzling that was reported, you know, a decade ago. The thing that was new and that is more insidious and interesting is internalized interference. So, this is researchers themselves. Um, not wanting to communicate with the media, generally out of fear of being misrepresented or backlash. You know, we, we know that the public, unfortunately, will harass people that speak out, particularly on environmental issues, or they fear that they might lose opportunities for funding or might be censured by their organizations, that there might be some constant negative workplace consequences for them. So this is actually a a self-constraint, a self-censorship that prevented them from kind of engaging with the media or pursuing certain avenues of research uh, that they're curious or passionate about.
0: Uh, I think that's the part that I really wanted to talk about the most because that strikes me as maybe the most dangerous part of this whole thing, right? I mean, we're obviously in a crisis situation. We have to talk about the environment as much as we possibly can because there's, you know, a crisis is already here and it's just going to get worse. We have to hear from the experts as much as we can. But those experts, I think you said like 50% said that they were limited the amount of contact they had with media and, and you know, sharing their research publicly. Well, what is research if it doesn't get disseminated, right? If there's no knowledge mobilization after you've, uh, you've come up with the data. So, and I think... I, And something that I just came across uh, recently was a study of people on on social media and the trust that people have in, you know, traditional media outlets uh, newspapers and radio and TV and that sort of thing compared to the trust that they have for information they get via social media. And in the US in particular, I think 60 some percent of people trust what they get on social media but fewer than 50% trust traditional media with journalistic standards and so on. And in Canada, that's reversed, but it's going that direction as well. People are trusting traditional media less and social media more. And I, I, and I imagine that climate scientists aren't immune to that either, that the distrust of media is sort of pervasive across all, you know, uh, facets of society. And I'm wondering if you had any responses that sort of, illuminated this distrust of traditional media i'm going to go and i'm going to tell them my data and i'm going to present my findings to the local reporter on the news but they're going to distort it somehow i i wonder what that kind of thinking is and if you have a sense of that from from the people that you spoke with
1: yeah we did through the survey get responses talking about kind of the fear of spin, the fear of spin misrepresentation of the results not being reported accurately, uh, which I think does speak to not necessarily a a distrust of traditional media, but thinking that the nuance of the research might not be accurately reported. And something scientists think about a lot are um, accuracy, error, We know that when we do research, we collect data, we analyze those data, we report a finding, and that finding has a confidence interval around it. So we can never say something with 100% certainty. There's always some level of uncertainty. And that's why multiple studies are done and studies are repeated. And it's meant to be this collective aggregation of information over time that builds builds a picture of, of how a phenomenon in the environment or anything being studied scientifically works. And that process just does not lend itself very well to headlines. Traditional media outlets and social media outlets both want certainty. They want flashy statements that have social impacts, that have relevance to the public, and have a difficulty with the nuances of science kind of accreting over time to produce robust results. And if scientists don't have media training, which most never get in their careers, then it's very difficult for them to be confident in their ability to convey those nuances when they're talking to reporters.
0: Is is that something that you find uh, yourself as well? Are are you reticent to speak to uh, media outlets or have you had the requisite media training? Uh, And if so, how did that help?
1: I myself am not reticent to speak to media because I've been extremely fortunate and I feel very passionately that scientists, especially scientists using public funding, should be communicating their results with the public. So I've been able to avail myself of media training that was available. Something that was really interesting these two papers was we were seeing some of the aspects in the papers play out in real time. So these papers were led by a graduate student and an undergraduate honor student, Manjula Ker- robertson and Samantha Chu. Neither of whom had received as part of their degrees, any training in science communication. It's just not part of a standard practice for a degree in science at the university level. Some of them had kind of outside experiences with communication, which was great. But something that we found was we found that Early career researchers, researchers from marginalized backgrounds, whether that's women, 2SLGBTQ folks, uh, racialized folks, kind of any minority background, actually experienced more interference, both that internalized self-censorship and in their workplaces. So it was really interesting working with a, a team that was overall kind of every member of the team was from sort of a non-dominant group in environmental science we also found that environmental scientists are like not representative of the diversity of the canadian population at all wasn't a huge surprise but was a bit disappointing so we have this team that kind of reflects our findings of people who are feeling more interference and then you know challenging ourselves as a team to go out there and to do media and to make sure these findings were shared so in order to do that We as a team undertook media training with our partner, Evidence for Democracy, that is an organization that does support scientists to learn how to communicate with the media and communicate with policymakers. So fortunately, they were able to help us out and and train our team for this.
0: I'm wondering about this, too, because this is something that we deal with the CPA all the time. And I'm putting together some media training packages for psychologists who want to be involved with, you know, getting their research out and and sharing their expertise via the media. And much like uh, in environmental science, that's not part of uh, a university program is this, uh, you know, communications program part of it. Do you think maybe that would be something that would benefit everybody if at the university level that was part and parcel of your training? Here's how you do the science, but also here's how you tell people about your science.
1: It is changing. Some uh, graduate programs in particular have you know, perhaps one module, something like that, on science communication or a little smattering of science communication in a course somewhere. There are courses available at more and more universities, but they tend to be elected, not standard at, at the program. Also, so much depends for, say, a graduate student or an undergraduate student who's doing research. They're generally working with a lab head or a principal investigator. And anyone who's worked with scientists knows that there's a huge variation in the personality of scientists. But many tend a bit more towards analytical mindsets, introversion, and themselves are not comfortable with and perhaps not super interested in speaking to the media. So we also need not just training scientists to speak to the media, which which is important and lots of people do a really good job of it. We also need really robust communications departments at all kinds of institutions that employ scientists who can do that work for them. Because it is a bit onerous to expect a researcher to be an expert in their field, to be an expert at conducting research, collecting data, analyzing those data, writing academically. Those are already a lot of skills that take many, many years to hone. And then asking them on top of that to be a really good public communicator, you know, a great public speaker it's just a lot to ask. And some people do it, but I don't think it should be necessarily standard. There should be training and pathways available for those who want to do it. And then there should be really robust communication systems that are supportive of getting the messaging out rather than restrictive of it um, to help do that knowledge translation on behalf of the scientists.
0: That's where I was going to go next is this idea that I would, you know, you have a communications department who can take the research that you've just done. They can translate it in a way that makes it more accessible to the public. They can then share that information and maybe they end up being the spokesperson for it because they're more comfortable doing so. But I I think that more often than not, you run into communications department that are more interested in crafting a specific message and your research isn't gonna get communicated. It's not gonna get translated because it doesn't fit the narrative that they sort of have in their heads already. And like you said, they're more restrictive than than anything else. And so I'm wondering, like that's sort of an institutional thing that I have a hard time wrapping my head around how to solve. Do you have any ideas in that space, uh, how, how to sort of do it from the top down?
1: So in the federal government, they instituted what were called the scientific integrity policies when kind of the Trudeau liberals took power, opened the office of the chief science advisor, and all the federal departments and agencies adopted these scientific integrity policies that were meant to deal with muzzling and, and solve some of these communications problems. So in our study, we found that of the scientists that were aware of these policies, so probably scientists working in the federal government, over half of them felt that it actually improved things and improved their ability to communicate their research with the public. So I think there are institutional policies that can be put in place, but we need them way beyond just the federal government. We need them in provincial government. We've got lots of um, evidence of kind of interference in science in various provincial governments across the country, industry, companies that employ scientists, you know, having strong policies at universities, at, at larger nonprofits and even smaller nonprofits. And part of that is guaranteeing the right to be a spokesperson or refusal to the researcher. So making sure that any communications product that is written, that is, you know, worked up into a podcast, whatever it is that the researcher has final say on whether it's published and whether uh, it needs any alteration before it's published, as well as the right to be the spokesperson for their own research if that's what they want. Uh, and that's really key to make sure that that spin that researchers are afraid of doesn't happen to make sure that they can look at this message that's been crafted and see if it accurately captures the the findings.
0: Yeah. But before I worked at the CPA, I was in radio for many years and, we did a morning show so it was all about you know the flashy headline of the day and every now and then one of my jobs was to look at the studies that created these headlines so you would have like a study and it would say you know smelling farts can help you live 7 years longer or something and you'd go like okay you could just report on that like it's a fact or you could actually look at what the study says and figure out what what we're talking about. And it would be somebody somewhere, not a reporter, but somebody who was you know interested in clickbait stuff, a blogger, perhaps something would look at the study, find a specific chemical in that study, link that chemical to, oh, that's what comes out in farts and then make this incredible leap of a claim, and then that would end up becoming the headline. Right. I think that's a lot of the time what people see, scientists certainly see, and I can imagine that the scientists who did that study, seeing that being the headline that came out of it might have been a little upset about it. Right. So a lot of that was, okay, we have to actually pick this apart. But what ends up happening is you just end up not talking about it at all. Right. Oh, that sounds like a fun headline. We could talk about that on a radio show, but that's not at all what the study says. So we're just not going to talk about that study. So I, I'm wondering if there's a balance, right, between getting the message out there and having it a little bit different than what you would hope that it that it is, versus making sure that absolutely everything in it is accurate. I run into this every now and then I'll set someone up with an interview and the interviewers are looking for, you know, specific uh, mental health issue among uh, middle schoolers, children from 12 to 14. And we'll speak with a researcher and they'll say, well, my researcher is with children from 11 to 13. So I can't comment on that. That's outside my wheelhouse. And you go like, okay, there's no one else. If not you, then who? Right. And and I think that's one of the messages I try to, you know, send to our scientists. If there's nobody who's a bigger expert on this subject than you are and you're not going to do it because it's not exactly your thing, then no one is going to speak to this. And that's something I worry about.
1: Like I said, we found that early career researchers are more afraid of the media. Researchers from minoritized backgrounds who represent a greater proportion of early career researchers are more afraid of the media, and for legitimate reasons. We've seen kind of doxing and harassment in online ecosystems, particularly around environment and climate. One of the things that I think we really need to sort out is where are traditional and social media ecosystem is going. So if you look at the traditional media ecosystem and you look at the number of reporters who are assigned to a science or environment beat, it has steadily declined in Canada and worldwide. As far as I'm aware, over the last decade, we've had all these cuts in newsrooms. Reporters are just slammed. They're just trying to grab a, grab a story. They don't have time to read the study behind it. So there's kind of this relationship that never gets built, where the scientists can trust the reporter to have done their due diligence, and then the reporter can trust the scientists to have media training. And neither is true because of limited capacity. So I think as we figure out the role of traditional media, it would be great to return to capacity levels where we have people working on beats where they actually – know who are the experts, what are the experts doing, building relationships with those experts. Because I think part of it is trust. For some of the work we do in my lab, you know, I know I have relationships with a few reporters that I trust. And I know that they're, they're real pros. They've been working on the environment for decades in some cases. And they're going to go read my papers. And then when we talk, they're going to challenge me. They're going to challenge me on the sample size or the method that we used to collect the data. And that's great because it means they have the expertise to tease out the nuances, but that's really rare. That's less, less a small handful of people in Canada who have the time and expertise from the journalism side. So I think we kind of need to build that capacity on the side of the scientists to feel empowered and protected in their workplaces. That's a big one to talk to the media so that they're not afraid of kind of consequences for their jobs, but we also need to give traditional media reporters the time to do to do a good job of it which they just don't have
0: yeah I, that's something that i think is uh, certainly beyond uh, our capacity at the moment because yeah as you said it certainly has decreased over the last decade 20 years even the last five years and it's not just science it's you know there's also the business Reporters—they've declined. Every reporter in every field has declined. There's fewer and fewer here in Ottawa. We just lost an entire news organization. Everyone was—everyone's gone. There's no news anymore on the radio, right? It's uh, just shrinking and shrinking. And what's sad is that it seems like social media is filling the void. People who style themselves as reporters, but really have an agenda to push and that you know spread more disinformation than anybody else. You know, you're talking about some of the backlash that people receive, and certainly in, in environmental studies, it's one of the big areas in which people face this backlash because there is this concerted effort to use social media to sort of weaponize all these kind of outliers into silencing people who say things that just don't fit with what where they want the world to go, I guess. But it's such a small number of people when you actually look at it in in the aggregate. It's a tiny, tiny group. They're just so loud and so vicious that it is frightening people into silence. And you said that LGBTQ people, visible minorities, people with disabilities are feeling more muzzled, both internally and externally. And I think one of the reasons for that might be that They are a much greater target for this sort of vitriol online uh, than others are.
1: Meta's ban on news, this has just gotten worse really quickly. I think it's kind of deteriorated exponentially. I was quite a heavy social media user myself, and I had to remove myself in the last couple of months because there's no legitimate information allowed to be circulated. All that is being circulated are these position or opinion snapshots, you know, memes, stories, short write-ups because actual legitimate journalism is not allowed on these massive platforms that most people are getting most of their news from, which is frightening. And all I see are these kind of position statements from people in political encampments that by and large, from my understanding of the various kind of political issues that have been flaring up, both of these dug in positions are probably wrong and certainly don't capture the nuance of what's happening. So I actually had to just remove myself because I found it too upsetting every day to look at that and be exposed to that as you know, the first thing I do when I wake up and scroll on my phone. So I've actually returned to traditional media and sort of once a day, once every second day, there's a couple of sources that I trust that I know have journalistic standards. You know, since doing that the last couple of months, I felt like the world's not such a bad place. Social media made me feel like everything was burning down all the time. Everything that could possibly be wrong was wrong. And returning to trusted traditional media There's actually a lot of really positive things happening so that that's been a nice change i've been able to make for myself
0: yeah uh, for sure that makes a lot of sense i mean uh, i have to be on it every day it's part of my job here at the cpa but uh, my own personal accounts i really don't look at very often and i'm not scrolling anymore twitter has become an absolute dumpster fire and i i agree with you i think Facebook banning Canadian news in particular is just one of the most dangerous things that's happened in a long, long time, Uh, especially as people start to trust social media more, uh, right? I think a lot of the time is that people aren't able to make a distinction between uh, something that's shared on social media from a legitimate, respected news site, uh, Winnipeg Free Press or something, right? Versus something that is shared from a, blog site where people have a specific agenda to tell you that climate change isn't real and that, you know, lizard people run the world or whatever. There's, there is no filter to distinguish between those two things. So those are the sites that are now making themselves look like news, but not news that are allowed to proliferate. Right. And I think, yeah, it's super dangerous.
1: Um, You know, we were talking about university level training, but media literacy needs to start way sooner. I think media literacy in today's world needs to be a standard part of education curriculums for kids as young as elementary school because they're already seeing it. They're all a bit terrifyingly, but a lot of them are already on social media. So they're seeing things and being able to assess, where is this coming from? What is the agenda of whomever is sharing this? Um, what is the source? Does the source actually have any accountability? A lot of people I talk to don't don't know what journalistic standards are or that they exist. And of course, so much misinformation has been spread about so-called traditional media. And certainly there's there are lots of traditional media outlets that have a point of view that might be on one side of the political spectrum or another. But if you know that and you understand that, and you understand the lens they're coming in with, you can still look at the information and evaluate it and take from it what you will knowing that that lens is there and being able to separate it from what you're saying is not news, but is really like agenda driven advocacy content, really not, not news. So we just need that education to start so much earlier and studies have been showing that science literacy in general has been declining over the last 15 years, uh, particularly in the U.S., but also in Canada. So we kind of need to think about it as a society shoring up some of these fundamentals, because one of the things that is, of course, key to um, an informed electorate who can make decisions about who to vote for, who can hold their representatives to account, is they need to have the tools to know how to inform themselves. And we seem to be losing those.
0: Every time I see a study in that vein, it, it shocks me. I saw one recently, you know, uh, talking to people who are refusing to get the COVID vaccine and that sort of thing. And, and the numbers, and you can share the numbers with them. You know, if you are unvaccinated and you get COVID, you have a one in however, 250 chance of actually dying. And if you do get the vaccine, you have a one in 75,000 chance of developing Myocarditis, or whatever it is, right? And people don't understand the difference between those numbers. That, that the literacy there, that, and I saw the number was, I think people have a hard time wrapping their head around numbers that are larger than three. And I thought, like, that's, that's something that I think people don't know when they go in to communicate their science. That they, I think we all sort of assume people have, a level of knowledge that is closer to ours than it might actually be. And at the same time, you don't want to dumb things down to explain it, right? So, like people are smart enough to grasp the concepts that you're saying. They just might not retain it if it's too scientific, right? And so that's a fine line, I think, in science communication that that isn't explored really uh, very, very often.
1: If we're wanting to make sure that everybody has a chance to understand a piece of information that is included, it needs to be at about a grade nine reading level. And a lot of scientists don't realize that their, their box plot or whatever figure they've come up with is just something that a lot of people have never encountered and won't really fully understand how to interpret because they've never encountered it. There's more and more evidence about how to kind of inoculate people against misinformation or address folks who've absorbed misinformation in ways that actually are productive. Uh, I mentioned, you know, the partner we work with, Evidence for Democracy, because they've put together some toolkits on this, but there's a lot of other organizations doing this work. So if others are kind of feeling as frustrated as I have been with some of the conversations that happen around the dinner table with sort of things people have heard, but they themselves maybe don't have the tools to question them. There, there actually are techniques that researchers in psychology have shown are more effective than others for helping people deconstruct some of what they've been seeing go around online and just kind of believe because someone they trusted shared it.
0: I think that's a big part of it, too, is it gets shared by someone that you trust personally, that you know in your personal life. Therefore, it seems more credible. All right. We've got about five minutes left before this cuts us off super rudely because I'm cheap and I have the free Zoom. I'm hoping you can just maybe give me an mm-hmm. overview as best you can. The scientists in the environmental space still feel muzzled from a number of different sources, right? Some of it's internal because they are wary of the media and they fear this backlash, which is certain to come when you do go into a media space. But also, their institutions seem to have this same fear, and it's a little more of a structured muzzling in that circumstance, where does that leave the field of environmental science at the moment, given that we are in this crisis situation where that's maybe the most important field to hear from going forward? What do you think the next few years hold, given that this is the current circumstance?
1: I think our studies have identified an important vulnerability that we didn't know about before, but also there's a lot of opportunity. So I actually think that this problem is really solvable, which is not necessarily true of many of the problems themselves in the environmental field, which are very kind of complex, wicked problems. To me, this is a relatively easy problem to make some headway on. If we make some headway on this and environmental scientists are more empowered to conduct and communicate their their work, that means more informed policymakers, a more informed public, better environmental decision-making. So it's sort of by dealing with what's a reasonably solvable short-term fix we can actually make some headway on longer more (laughs) systemic issues like climate change like species loss like increasing natural disasters so there's a couple of things that i think can be done actually really quickly Uh, one is institutional policy so we need two things we need sort of scientific integrity policies in every institution that employs scientists we have good models for what these policies look like they just need to be adopted it's actually not that difficult in the grand scheme of things. We also need to support uh, minoritized and early career researchers in their institutions so that they don't feel like, you know, there could be workplace harassment or backlash for them for speaking out. So that means specifically targeting these groups with media training, policy training, showing them their institutions, showing them that they are supported to do their work and to communicate it with the public. So those are kind of two, Relatively easy thing that any institution employing scientists can do immediately. And then on the kind of more systemic level, I think we need regulation, regulated to media. So help to hamper down this misinformation, disinformation ecosystem. We need more support for traditional media outlets to have the capacity to do deeper reporting, to have reporters who can specialize a bit more. And I think that if we can do that and sort out, you know, making sure that real legitimate news can exist on social media or finding ways to direct people towards real legitimate news, I I think we can actually make a lot of headway on this. And I'm hoping that when we redo this study in 10 years, which we fully plan to, that we're going to find that these numbers are looking a lot better, is my hope.
0: I hope so, too. Adopting it is sort of Policy at an institutional level seems like the easiest fix, and I would agree. And I would say that the one thing that you mentioned that I think is the easiest thing to fix, I would hope, is that in instituting those policies, you said a lot of researchers fear sharing their research or pursuing an area in which they they feel strongly that they want to you know uh, explore in the environmental science space because they fear f- losing future funding, right. That could be something that it strikes me as being very, it could be explicitly stated that it will have no bearing on any future funding that you receive from this governmental organization or from uh, some other source, you know? That seems like maybe the easiest immediate fix if, if, you know, organizations can get on board with that.
1: Some of that fear comes around industry partners. And, you know, we got a lot of writing responses about research directions being tied to funding from industry partners and industry interests. And then the, I think the answer to that is to kind of look at this balance of how research funding is administered in Canada, which is already, you know, there's already reports and recommendations around this that, that folks are trying to implement to ensure that there's you know, lots of available support to do research that doesn't rely on necessarily having an industry partner, which is important and we need that, but we need people to be supported to do that work and then to do the work that might be quote unquote more unpopular.
0: We can't really have a proper discussion about the climate crisis without the proper information about climate change. And we can't get that information if no one's looking for it. These are significant problems, but problems that feel solvable. Thanks to Dr. Alana Westwood for joining me today on Mindful and to you at home for listening, streaming and downloading. Join us again next week for the next installment in our Psychology Month climate change series. Mindful is written, hosted and published by me, Eric Bullman. Our producer and editor is Jamie Montgomery and our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.